This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Zach Meir. And I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show... Disruptive Influences. We can all go, oh, government, it's not fair. I like to see what, where a problem is and solve it. We're talking to Rob Moore. Is he an innovator or an anarchist? I see risk in a different way. I think if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. I wanna be We're joined today by Rob Moore, who is an entrepreneur, a bright young thing in the world of uh, real estate. Um, Rob, how did you get started? Uh, End of 2005, my dad had a a nervous breakdown in his pub uh, in front of all of his customers, and I was working for him. And I'd always wanted to be my own boss entrepreneur, uh, but I guess I'd never really had the courage to uh, fly out of the family nest and the security of either my parents paying for me or working for them. And um, I guess I was shamed in that I was 25 when this happened. 18, fair enough, but 25, I'm like an adult who's supposed to be standing on my own two feet. And uh, um, I felt quite a lot of shame in that happening and felt part of the process. My dad was nearing retirement age and should have really been able to wind down, but he was going through the hardest years of his life. Uh, And uh, then I just asked myself, well, what am I going to do? This is, I've got to do it. And started searching around, thought, what can I offer? What can I do? Uh, I could do art. So I started an art business. Uh, Failed at that, but that's another story. But also went to a a local networking event where there was a property speech. And there I met my now business partner. So kind of like serendipity, if you like. But I was looking. So that was when it started for me. Uh, Sort of start of 06, got into property. Start of those, yes. Uh, yeah, just before it all went wrong. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, the worst timing ever. Um, and then uh, start of 07, set up my first uh, proper company, Progressive Property. All right, so you're literally on the uh, the ledge as far yes. as that particular property bubble was concerned. Um, yeah. I, that for me is actually more impressive than somebody who started in you know, 2008, 2009 after the dip. How did you cope with that um, turmoil? Because it must have been quite frightening. Yeah, well, I think first off, naivety, because uh, I think it's often said, isn't it, if you knew what you were getting into, you might not have. And I had no experience, but all these aspirations and dreams, and I I now was I had to do it. And I think that's the difference. I had to do it, whereas before I could do it, and but I was sort of had the safety of a job. Uh, So the first year was quite exciting, but because we were so young and we didn't have a lot of money and we were new, we got 20 properties in our first year that we bought, but they're all little single lets, um, sort of about an hour outside of London. And then the the crash happened and uh, everything fell off a cliff. That's the thing now. I mean, now you can't even get a mortgage. I mean, you have to pay much more. You know, you buy a £300,000 flat, you've got to put, I don't know, a third of the money down or more. I don't even know what it is now. There's no point even thinking about it. You know, massive six-figure sum. You can't actually, how do you get on the property ladder now? And how yeah. would you do it now? I think that maybe that's probably the issue of the day, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, uh, the rates are lower now. So the repayments, if you can get a mortgage, you're going to be lower and therefore your margins and your yields are going to be a bit better. But you're right, the, the, the lumps of de- deposits you need. Uh, and what a lot of more innovative property investors are doing are looking at joint ventures. 
where they're, t they're, they're partnering up with people who've got some money. And of course, there's a lot of uh, money from all over the world that's in London. So whilst you might need more money, there's more people with money in London. I'm from Peterborough, where prices are a lot lower. And, th and there isn't all of the, you know, the Russians and the Qatarians, etc., that there are in London. So uh, partnering with people, because the, the, the sort of the, the counterbalance is because the rates are so low, no one's leaving the money in the bank, because it's the worst place to leave it. So there's more kind of private money coming out, but there's just less bank money coming out. So today we've discovered that home ownership is at a 30 year low. And, you know, you've, you've done a lot of encouraging people to get into the property business. Mm. Do you not think that encouraging more buy to let landlords at the moment is fueling this lower level of home ownership and a peak in rents or uh, renters? I think that affordability is fueling it. I think changing lifestyle is fueling it. I think people are accepting that they're living in sp smaller spaces. That's fueling it. I think relaxation in some of the planning regs are fueling it. So you're saying that people shouldn't accept that they, they're living in smaller spaces? Well, I think that life is changing. I mean, if you look in Japan, this is the, the amount of the, the bigger population, the amount of, of place that they'll accept to live in is much smaller. If you go back 100 years in England, everyone had a castle. So I think that I, I don't think you blame the entrepreneur for creating it. I think it's a a change of lifestyle but of course we're a part of the cycle of it because if there's a demand for more housing because there's an oversupply of people which there are in the UK then the entrepreneur the, the landlord comes in and they they take a three-bed house and turn it into a six-bed house and they become part of the cycle I wouldn't blame them um, because if it wasn't for them creating the housing the extra population coming in wouldn't be able to have the extra housing it's just that they're living in smaller spaces now is a particular problem in, in the UK's cities and Greater Manchester was cited in a report by the Resolution Foundation. Um, I mean, do you think that the, it's down to the government to do something? And in that case, yeah. what, what is the one thing that needs to happen? Well, well look, what I don't want to do is bang the drum of being the victim. So, uh, you know, I believe in entrepreneurship is... is... You'll find I'm the victim. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was, I wasn't looking at you. I don't know that. But the point is we can all go, oh, government, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's not the way I like. I like to see what, where a problem is and solve it. And I believe that's what being an entrepreneur is, adding value, creating value. But there is a housing shortage. Yeah. It is getting worse and worse and worse. And, of course, people are living longer. You've, of course, you've got immigration, which is uh, exaggerating. You've got all these things. And they're not building any houses. So they've either got to build the houses or they've got to incentivize people who are landlords or up and coming landlords or up and coming entrepreneurs to solve the problem for them. Now, eight years ago, they were doing that because the council were paying good rents, which meant that we would be able to house their tenants. But then they dropped the rents. And so now the, 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 the private landlording is better than the council landlording. So really, they've got to put their hand in their pocket and either give us some tax breaks I don't want to get in my soapbox, but you asked the question. I did. Give us some tax breaks. Help us make it easier so we can collaborate. Because I like collaborating with the governments and the councils. We do it a lot with our developments. Or build a load more houses. So as a classic, I'm a classic millennial, right? I'm 30 okay. years old. I, I don't own a home. I've got what would once have been considered quite a substantial amount in savings, but it's not going to buy me a house. What would you say, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I should do? Well, I think, I think being a millennial is like one of the best things in history to do. 
Uh, my daughter is two and she can scroll across like they do and that she, uh, my five-year-old can unlock my iPhone. And if you're a millennial and you're brought up on all this technology, I think it's the greatest opportunity in the world ever. You can hack your mum's eBay account. You can sell all your mum's stuff on eBay. You can set up an Amazon business. You can set up your own podcast. You can set up your own YouTube channel and be your own TV show. You can set up podcasts and audios and be your own radio show. And, and, and people are saying it's harder now. I think it's easier than ever. So what would I do? I'd set up some kind of internet-based business that I could leverage where I could operate from my phone or my laptop anywhere in the world. I wrote a book called Life Leverage on that. So that's what I'd do if I was a millennial. I mean, and then get into property when you've got a bit of experience or you've saved up some deposits. Okay. Do you think um, millennials should, should, should definitely put the start off if they want to go on the property ladder? The first thing then is to set up your own business, make some cash with that business and then get on the property ladder. Yeah, and build, build a network um, of contacts and partners. Because if you go back to what I, earlier I said, if you don't have big deposits, you need to look at partnering with people who've got money and they leverage your time and your, what your builders experience in property. So, you, yes, you, you build up some deposit pots, but I think more important, you build up the network of people. Uh, and, um, you, you know, what speed of light you now is how fast information travels through fiber optics. It's just you can, you can reach billions of people, billions of customers very quickly and, and on, on free platforms like Facebook and, and YouTube. So, um, and the great thing about millennials is they've been brought up on this. They're the first generation that kind of get this and it's normal and they're not against it. Whereas maybe uh, the younger ones, the really younger ones, I don't know what they're going to call them. What is it? Generation Z. Yeah, Z or Y2K or Z, yeah. The younger, younger ones, they're going to have all the the cancers and they're looking at the screens and all, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to that, but they've got to deal with all that. Whereas the millennials were kind of, it was almost like the crash test dummies of this. I'll get off my soapbox. Ask me the next question. No, I find it really exciting for them because it's, there's, there's nothing that's getting in the way. Whereas, you know, these sort of baby boomers, they can't operate half of this equipment. My, my generation has that deposit saved up. Would you say it's better to put it into a business than it is to just save and save and save and eventually one day in the distant future put it into a house? Mm. Because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm backed by a property portfolio, that's a hard question. That's the chicken and the edge egg question for me. I wouldn't say either one is better. I'd say it's different. I'd say it depends what you want. Because if you're an older generation, you might not want to set up another business and, you know, and deal with what, ha- what comes with setting up a business. You might be looking for more passive income or pension income or retirement income, in which case if you've got enough deposits, it's probably better and safer and less of your own time to put into property. Um, so it depends on how active you want to be. Risky, though, starting a business. It's, it's a risky thing. Do you think uh, everyone's or, cut or, out for What's it? more risky, starting your own business or working for someone else for the rest of your life and getting a pension you'll never get uh, and working for someone you don't like? And, you know, the only difference with being an entrepreneur is um, the, the upside is uncapped. Sure, the downside is uncapped. I, I don't know. I suppose I see risk in a different way. I think if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. And I see it way riskier to put it in someone else's control, your financial future and destiny. So that's a personality trait that you have, that you, you, know, you want to do things your way, you want to be the boss. A lot of people don't have that, don't have the nerve for that, do they? Well, maybe how do they acquire, don't. How do you get that nerve? I, I think you, anything is learnable. If someone's done it, you can do it. Because not every entrepreneur on the planet who's self-made never had a job and was like completely unemployable and had a huge ego and therefore couldn't take instruction. You know, that, I think that's the sort of the cartoon that we see in the media. 
but quite a lot of people who are entrepreneurs saved up by working in a job, worked evenings and weekends in their own business, got to a point where they replaced their salary and then did it. And you can do it with much lower risk. Also, you can be an introvert now and not an extrovert and you can be a, a techie and still, yeah, and still build a good business and have an online profile. So I, I think you know, we were talking about suits earlier, weren't we? You know, there's a lot of these sort of TV shows, Dragon's Den, The Apprentice, even some of the Netflix ones. They glorify what being an entrepreneur is. You don't have to have this massive sort of, um, you know, unemployable ego to be an entrepreneur. But after, you know, you, you said earlier that your first business failed. Were you not, have you, or have you never been worried that you're going to fail again? Mm, no, no. Um, I fail every day. I make bad decisions every day. I, I, thankfully, I've got a team of people who will clean up my mess. And I've kind of built up a, built up a bit of a, a reputation for taking risks. It's just you reduce the downside. You know, for example, I'd never put more than 5% of my net worth into one investment. Um, if I'm going to do something that's got risks, I'll make sure I'll somehow protect the downside, maybe test launches, crowdsourced ideas that I know are already being stress test, like my book Life Leverage. My community chose the title. My community chose the subtitle. My community told me that they wanted that book. So I knew I can go and buy 25,000 copies and not have 24,500 sat in a warehouse because I knew I had that many people already said I'd be interested in that book. So I think you can, you can reduce the risks. So have you, have you had a sleepless night since you started your, your, your entrepreneurial career in 2005 in the last 10 years? My business partner's had loads, but I kind of, I kind of outsource grief onto him. So he, he, he's much more uh, techie. He, you know, he's much more analytical. He's the guy that when things are going through his head doesn't sleep. Uh, I'm kind of not really like that. I, I, I sleep very easily. Uh, so um, on the personality profiles, I'm at the top and he's at the bottom. You know, I'm the, I, you might say I have more of the, the ego and the need to be loved and the, you know, the unresolved issues from when I was younger. Uh, and he's very much more pragmatic and systematic. And I think whether you've got a business partner or you have people in your team that are different to you, I think that's really important. Do you need that dynamic, though? Do you need the kind of reckless one? And the sensible one. Yeah, I think I, I think it's good because a, a sensible one will find it hard to be reckless, and a reckless one will feel that they're being held back. Because if if we use those sort of stereotypes, the reckless one doesn't want anyone to tell them what to do or get them in the way, or they think they're being negative. Whereas the the safe one sees everything as risk. Is that why quite a lot of partnerships fail though? To kind of flip it over. I think they fail because people are too similar. Okay. I would totally fail in a partnership with me. It would just be an argument who could speak the longest, you know. And I, I, That's why this podcast is so wonderful, because we're like chalk and cheese. Yes. Emma, Emma and myself. Exactly. So a good cop, bad cop. But yeah. doing a bit of bad cop here, um, on, the, on the real estate side, yeah. I mean, this has been the last 10 years of, since, the, since the, the crash. It's been the easiest time ever to make money out of property. You've got zero rates, uh, total chronic, you know, chronic housing shortage, 10% rise a year or even more on yeah. real estate. I mean, you know, you, you know, even a, a baby could have made money in these markets if they, or, and you know, if they had loads of deposits, if they had the deposit. You have, <laughs> yeah. All you need to have it's is a like... deposit, get some money from uh, mum and dad, and away you go. I mean, you, you know, you're flying. Right. So that's what Emma should do, really. Yeah, mum and dad, <laughs> are you listening? But uh, so, so how difficult? I mean, it hasn't been difficult, has it? Really? I think it depends how you perceive it. I think it was easier uh, up to '06. You know, when you really didn't hardly need any a deposit. But I think different things are easier and different things are harder. So you said earlier, didn't you need deposits? So that's harder from 06. Yeah. But what's easier is lower rates, 
So therefore, hopefully a higher yield, therefore, hopefully a higher income. Um, I think if you have really short term views of property, then any argument could be backed up. I have a very long term view of property uh, and, and I'm 37 now and I want to be in property when I'm 87 and 97. And if you track back since 52, when properties were worth less than £3,000 as an average, and we must be well over £200,000 now, even out of London. I think if you look through history, I think if you're in property long enough, you're going to do well. But you're going to go through cycles like you do anything, like you do economies. And so, so right now, rates are lower, so that's better. But banks are tighter, so that's worse. But private finance is easier and you've got crowdfunding, which we weren't talking about 10 years ago. So that's easier. So things don't change, they move. Like in a recession, people don't go and burn money like KLF did. They don't go light up a million pounds. Those were the days. You know, well, yeah. What happens is money just moves into different places. You know, they say the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. So, so uh, when there's disruptions, that's, that's when there's more money movement. When there's no disruptions, people are holding savings. And so I think we're in a disruptive time. And I think, therefore, entrepreneurs can make a this big opportunity. I mean, you're, you're based out of Peterborough. You, you're, you yes, exactly. There. If I can make it work there, anyone can. But then, but then so, that, that, so that message for me, you know, Emma with her 20 grand, she should go and buy a, a little house uh, in, in Northumbria, or I can't try to think of somewhere up there, get, rent it out, start, get on the property ladder. I mean, the main thing is to get on the property yes. ladder and then gradually every, every two or three years sell that, buy a more expensive one and keep going up the ladder like that. So you, there's no barrier to, I mean, there isn't actually that much barrier to entry if you start, at the cheapest end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think if, you st- if you're in London, an expensive area, start with a um, studio flat and start with a shoebox because 10 years later, that shoebox will have doubled or more in London like it has. You just track back through history. In 1088, the average land and property values in the whole of the UK were just about £1 million. And now in London, some flats are worth more than that. So, and that's, so that's a, some serious data. Uh, my business partner would love that kind that's of data. data. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 reduce your lifestyle a bit. You know, just, just there's a book called Vagabonding where it basically teaches you how to live on a much reduced lifestyle. That's kind of the earning your stripes as an entrepreneur. Do that for a few years when you've got no overhead and no risk in your uh, early 20s or however old you are and save up and get your first house, rent out the rooms to your mates, cover your mortgage with the rent, the room that you re- the rooms that you rent out for your mates. Make sure that your mortgage company can let you do that. And then every then what you do is you get a second one and you have a buy to let. And yeah, you, you keep going up the ladder in your own house because you can offset some tax reliefs uh, on that. I think it's PPR, I think it is, where your personal private residence um, and yeah, that's and then in ten years you'll have twenty or thirty properties and you'll be financially free. And in twenty years you'll be interviewed on podcasts like this. So did did you start off <laughs> making those sacrifices early on in your in your entrepreneurial career? Yeah, I mean everything comes at a cost. So what, so, what so were what's the sacrifices the, that you made? Uh, over, overhead being paid by a boss, security, predictability. Which by the way, I hate those. So I'm kind of like, that's kind of like a bit of a small price to pay, but there's a price to pay for everything. I guess people who've got the safety might look at an entrepreneur and see it as risky, but you know, we're taking different kind of, of risks, but things as when you're in control of your own destiny in control of your own decision and control of your own product that you put to market and control of your own customers that you source and your own time, for me, that's a bigger upside than my mortgage being paid by my boss who might fire me, you know, because I'm, I'm no longer needed. But now you've got kids, 
Mm. Do you have the same attitude to risk? Uh, I'm a little bit less risky. Um, I haven't flown the helicopter for quite a while. I'm kind of scared in that regard. Um, I sold a Panamera Turbo, I sold a 700 brake car and got a Range Rover. Um, so I am actually a bit scared in terms of how I'm living my lifestyle. Um, Financially? I, uh, well, I mean, I want to put them all, my, all, both my kids through private school. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the costs have gone up significantly, but I, I put my kids, um, both their school fees in the bank till they're 18 uh, away before we had my kids because I knew I wanted to put them through private school. It was something that was really important to me. So, I, so if, if you think long term enough, you can cover any overhead. So there's no risk? Well, there's risk in everything, isn't there? Um, I suppose the risk is you leave 14 years times two of school fees in the bank and inflation is higher than interest rates. That's a small risk. But, you know, if you put it in a, safe, a small safe investment, that's returning four or five percent, you'll earn money on your kids' school fees. Right. I mean, you talked about, you know, you made, you know, made the money, made enough money for the kids to go to school. Um, you're trying to give it back through your podcast or mm. give back that advice and the, what you've learned over the years. How, how, how is that going for you, the disruption the, the disruptive podcast. Yeah, good. So we have about 300,000 subscribers. And it's That's called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Yes, it's called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Um, interviewed Frank Bruno, Kevin Kelly, who created Wired Magazine, uh, John Demartini from The Secret, James Kahn, Lord Sugar coming up. So we've got some great people interviewed on it. For me, it's just now that I don't have to work for money, I can go and express myself in whatever way I want. And um, for example, with my publisher with Life Leverage, my book, they took some of the expletives and some of the stories that were a bit close to line out for kind of they pg'd it from being 18 but i can do and say what i want on the podcast and so therefore it's probably a truer reflection of who i am so it's kind of like i have artistic license and it's great to be able to do that and give back and not charge for that so yeah it's um it, it's fun and um yeah we have a lot of subscribers around the world and it's something i'm enjoying doing but what makes you do it what you know, I know why we do the City AM podcast, but what makes you do one for yourself? Do you feel like you have to give back to the community? Yeah. Uh, it, it, do, you want, do you want the honest answer? You both yeah. leant back there. It's like, mm, did you know you were going to get a long answer? <laughs> okay, so it's a combination of now that I'm in the position that I don't need to work anymore, knowing that I was skinned and saw what happened with my dad, now I'm in a position to be able to contribute more. I should do that. And if I don't do that, then all I am is a uh, the capitalist stereotype that, that I don't want to be perceived as. So that's one. Two, I still need my voice to be heard and I still have unresolved issues. Um, often people with my personality types, they need kind of like, they need, the, they need to be loved. And I'm fiddling around with those blooming statistics four times a day, refreshing them. And when I get great reviews, I'm like the happiest person ever. And then when I get one slam, someone recently said, if Rob Moore is a cake, he'd eat himself, which I actually thought was a good one star review. <laughs> I probably would eat myself if I was a cake. But actually, I, I, there's still a part of me that doesn't feel like I've finished either who I'm but meant to become. But that's good because rather than tune that into being a, a self-depreciating introverted artist that I was 10 years ago, I'm kind of able to channel that into more creative philanthropic areas, I suppose now. I think I, what's, what struck me is that your father was your inspiration. He was like the, the, the starting gun on mm. what you did. Whereas most, I mean, CEOs of people, I, business people I interview, it's all me, me, me. There's mm. nothing, there's nothing at all. I mean, yeah. It's just totally about themselves. Sure. So that is a, I think that is quite inspirational as well. 
I appreciate you saying that. I think also from a from a, a balanced perspective of the way I think the world works, you need to balance selfish and selfless. I mean, look at Bill Gates, selfish for many years, made billions, but then basically society forced him to be a philanthropist and his guilt has kind of forced him, from the way I see it, I don't know, he's not, Bill's not my mate or anything. Um, and I think if you could be in control of that balance and do that balance, you won't get a massive revolt from society. So I think um, capitalism re requires giving back for, for the system to work. Well, Rob Moore, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, can't wait to see how it pans out. Thank you very much. With thanks to Rob Moore, this has been City AM Unregulated. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.